Good morning, everybody. What a wonderful time of worship we've had so far. And uh, it's once again just a magnificent experience to be meeting here for church at NYU. Can we thank NYU and the staff here for being so gracious to us? We're very grateful. Grateful to be here. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Jonah, so you can open your Bibles and uh, turn over to that book. Uh, we are missing a few people uh, because our campus ministry is actually down in North Carolina this weekend for the International Campus Ministry Conference, which happens every year. So please continue to pray for them, and when they come home, I'm sure they're going to have a lot of uh, good news and inspiration to share with us. All right, so I want to reintroduce Jonah. Last week we had a great time with all of the kids here uh, in the service with us. Uh, we had a lot of people at our Edge Ministry Park service at Randall's Island, which I can't stop hearing great things about. And our own Josh Rockford preached over 700 people. It was just an amazing inspiration, and I'm sure everyone was encouraged, especially Mark. He was really encouraged by it. Come on! All right. Uh, so Jonah... A small book, actually only about 48 verses total in the four small chapters of Jonah, but a big message and a lot of surprises. And uh, usually when we read the prophet books of scripture, what we're reading is the prophet's words to challenge uh, or to correct or to inspire a group of people, usually Israel. So when you read Jeremiah, you're reading Jeremiah's words that are inspired by God to the people to repent or to change or to be humble. You're reading Ezekiel's words of prophecy to the people, Isaiah's words of prophecy to the people. Here in Jonah, it's a little bit different. Jonah, we're actually learning a little bit more about the person than really the words that he has. He's got few words, and they're important when we, when we read them, but mostly it's, it's a different setup here, and so we have to read it a little bit differently as well. Uh, also, just by way of review, uh, Jonah was living a very cush life uh, under the rule of Jeroboam because as a prophet, uh, it gets tough when you have to challenge people, but up to this point, he's only been giving good news to the king. And so uh, he's had a real easy cocktails with the king, everything good, uh, good with God, good with the king, good with the people. And then all of a sudden, things start to go differently when we uh, introduce Jonah in this story. He is told by God to go to Nineveh, and we learned a little bit about the Ninevites last week. They're cruel people. And so instead of doing what prophets do and going to prophesy to the city and challenge them on their wickedness, what does he do? He goes the opposite direction all the way to Tarshish. We showed a map. It was funny because uh, where he lived was right next to Nineveh, and he decided to take the long way away through the Mediterranean all the way to ancient Hawaii. Tarshish was like old vacation spot. And so he's on this boat. He's trying to get away from God. We know you can run, but you can't hide. Uh, but he's trying anyway. And then a storm comes, and we are in the middle of this intense uh, death-defying situation where Jonah eventually just says, it's my fault, throw me overboard. And where we ended up last time was in verse 17 of chapter 1, and we'll pick up there in just a second. But certainly Jonah, I would say, is a complicated man of God. And constantly he's wrestling with his identity, with his purpose, with his beliefs. And I think because of that, 
He's all of us. We can all wrestle with those same things. Finding Jonah is really about finding ourselves. We're all able to put ourselves in the story. How we can be so easily lost at sea and how we can encounter storms in our life, but how God throws us a lifeline. Amen? Amen. So let's end out chapter 1 and verse 17 to remind us where we're at in the story. And it says there, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We're going to stop there before we jump into chapter 2. I have a picture here that I wanted to show you. Uh, many years ago in Los Angeles at one of the playgrounds that we used to go with the kids, I decided to get inside of this uh, pink fish and uh, do my best impression of Jonah. And uh, my mom was with us at the time, and she captured a few snapshots, and she found out that we were doing this series, so decided to remind me of the memory. And so I wanted to share that with you uh, in honor of mom. Now, what it makes me think of, though, is this picture is silly, right? When we read this story, perhaps some of us can be tempted to think, this is silly. Look, I understand maybe it's got spiritual, you know, application, but is this for real? I mean, let's be honest. Some of us, maybe most of us, have asked ourselves the same question, right? Okay, you don't have to admit it out loud or raise your hand. So, is it silly that a big fish swallowed up a man, and the man was in there for three days, and then lived to tell about it? And I want us to just consider briefly before we jump into chapter 2 about this question. You know, uh, you can spend hundreds of hours studying the accounts of fish uh, that are in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, that are big enough to be able to hold a person inside. You can study about great whites and sperm whales and uh, big groupers. And you know what? People have dedicated a lot of time to studying this exact issue to find out more about the Jonah story. Um, you can ask questions about breathing inside the fish and how does that work and what about stomach acid and if it's a mammal or if it's a fish, how does that work with them being able to provide and how many hours was he really in there? Was it a full three days or was it like a first century three day? Was it was like a night and then maybe basically 36 hours into the third day? How do you count that? Where was he spit up? Was he spit up? Is that right? You know, you start thinking about all the questions logistically of does this really work? Anyone with me there? Yes. And you can ask yourself, as many commentators of the Bible do also, well, uh, maybe it's allegory, maybe it's poetry, maybe it's parable, maybe it's prose. But then you have a whole other set of historians and commentators that say, wait a minute. If you're reading a poem, or you're reading a parable, or you're reading an allegory, or a story about something, um, there's a whole form involved about how the writer would approach that. Uh, you know, uh, what's the uh, poem? Roses are red. Okay, so there's certain triggers, there's certain forms, there's certain genre, uh, red flags. You go, okay, I'm reading a poem. Uh, when someone is uh, telling a story, they might start with, let me tell you a story. If Jesus is telling a parable, he would say, well, once there was a man. And, and there's all these literary forms that you have to look at, but none of that is here. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're talking about real people in real time and real places. We mentioned Jeroboam, a real king, a real place, a real time, a real context, a real prophet, a real place called Nineveh. And you don't follow all the same literary forms and structures that you would. So you start asking yourself, wait a minute, why all these real things if it's a completely fictional story? Are you guys with me? Yeah. Now, let me say something else. If you approach this text believing that 
God is an almighty God, that he can raise men from the dead, that he can right. heal leprosy, that he can heal blindness, that he can heal demon possession, that he parted the Red Sea, then you're okay with a big fish and a dude inside for a couple of days. Right. It's a weekend that you can say, okay, I kind of get it because I'm familiar with the Bible and I believe God's a big God. And I know he's done miracles in my life, so I'm okay. And so I want you just to consider these things in your faith as we think about this story. If you're not there in your faith, amen, there are astute Bible teachers all over this room that would be overly eager to approach and explore these questions with you. Me being one. Anyone else in the room really eager to explore Bible with people? Okay, okay, the hand's going up. Take note of those that want to get with those people, write it down, ask them afterward, they'll be very friendly, they might hug you, it's okay, it doesn't mean anything beyond just a hospitable welcome, okay? We're good. Jonah, chapter 2, verse 1, and it really continues from the last chapter. It says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Verse 2, he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I'll make good. I'll say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish. And it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Alright, let's stop there. Powerful stuff. And I want to kind of dive in deep, yes pun intended, uh, into the waters here of Jonah in chapter 2. There's a few questions that I want us to be asking of the text uh, as we approach uh, these verses in chapter 2. And the first question is, um, is, this, is this really real? Is this a genuine heart change from chapter 1 to chapter 2? Uh, is this really Jonah saying, uh, yes, this prayer is from my heart. I realize what I've done wrong. I, I want to be close to you, God. Or is it just, is Jonah like being in a bad situation and just like, God, help me out, okay? Because we can get there, right? Every now and then, uh, we might find time to pray, even though normally we're busy, but we're in a really bad situation, so that's when God, it's convenient to call on God, right? Does that make sense? So we can all kind of relate to the struggle and to the question. So, and you know what I mean by really real, right? Yeah. Is it really real? Because there's real, but then there's really real, right? It's like, hey, how you doing? I'm okay. All right, that's real. You're not saying yet. Let me get really real. You know what? I'm doing terrible, all right? I had a bad week. I'm angry at you, actually, right now. So let's get really real. So really real is another level of real. That really just means real, but because everything is so not real in the world, we have to qualify and say it's really real. All right, so you guys there? Come on, John. Thank you, So in chapter one, let me remind you, in chapter 1, uh, what did Jonah do? Well, Jonah is told by God to go do something, and he doesn't do it. He does the exact opposite. He runs, he hides, he sleeps, and he gives up. 
Right? We talked about that last week. So when in chapter 1 the captain of the boat tells every sailor, you better start praying each to your God. Let's go now because we're all going to die if we don't. What does Jonah do? He doesn't even pray. I mean, in the midst of terror and disaster, he can't. He actually just goes to bed. And, you know, we can relate to that too sometimes when things are overwhelming, uh, when we're stressed out. I just need to take a nap because I want to avoid, I want to escape or whatever it is. Or, hey, maybe you just need some sleep, right, to be able to process what's going on. So here, he doesn't even pray when the captain commands it of him. And really, up to this point in chapter 2, Jonah's only said a couple of words like, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, yeah, it's my fault, and throw me overboard. Not a lot from the prophet. So when he approaches chapter 2, when we start reading chapter 2, what do you see? This is a big old prayer, right? I mean, there's a lot of words here. This is a big difference. Then chapter 1, where he refused to pray, now all he is doing is praying. That's the whole chapter. One thing that's interesting is if you look at verse 2, it says, actually the end of verse 1, it says that Jonah prayed to the Lord, but then it adds two more words. What are they? Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. And a lot of people take note of those two little words, because no longer is it about some distant God far away, the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Jacob. Now it's God, my God, right. my personal relationship with the Lord. And this is an indication that his heart is really changing, that it, he's taking it personal and that it is really real. And so the first thing to pay attention to to answer the text question, is this really real, is he's praying to God. And you know, this is a good challenge for us. Sometimes, especially for those of us who have been Christian for a long time, prayer can become such a robotic routine that no longer are we praying to God, our God, my personal God. It's more just like I'm checking the box and I'm going through the motions and I did my prayer and I did my brush teeth and I did my shower and I did my breath. And it's all sort of part of it, but it's not special anymore. And so we got to take a, a note from Jonah that sometimes when we're in prayer, we got to remember this is my God, my personal relationship with the Lord. And yes, I'm praying. Yes, I'm being diligent and consistent and daily in it, but it's still special. Amen. The next question, if it's real, why is it real? What happened that changed Jonah's heart? And we see a few indications from the text here as well. <clears throat> One thing that he says in verse 2, if you go back, he says, I called out to you in my distress, in my distress. He says also, I'm in the realm of the dead. All right, that's pretty descriptive uh, words right there about how he's feeling. Um, the word there that he's referencing or using in the Hebrew is Sheol. Uh, and this is the Old Testament word for hell. Have you ever felt like you've gone through hell? Hello. All right, or you heard that terminology, right? I, I, I'm as good as dead. That's how tired I am. Man, I'm dead tired, right? Man, that killed me. That appointment crushed me. Man, that was death. That relationship was death. It was toxic. It was poison. It was di I'm dying. Right? So we, we say these things, and Jonah's really feeling it, and he actually even extends that, because first you might think, okay, that's poetic. I went through hell. But then in verse 5, the waves, what were the waves doing? What were the breakers doing? They were drowning him. Mm -hmm. He was drowning. Yeah. What does he say about the seaweed? 
The seaweed was wrapped around his head. I don't know about you. You've been under the water with seaweed wrapped around your head? Not me. That's not cool. That's not fun. That's not poetic. That, he's saying I almost drowned. He's talking about death face to face. He thought it was over. And then out of nowhere, God sends a vehicle of deliverance. In mercy to give Jonah right. a way out. You know, what does God have to allow you to go through in order to change your heart? What hell do we have to experience in order to get to the place where we realize that God is trying to get our attention? How much does he have to allow you to break yourself in self-destructive behavior before we submit and reach out to him? These are the questions that the text in Jonah forces us to respond to. And not only did Jonah feel the physical threat, he felt the spiritual threat as well. How do I know? Because he starts talking about feeling spiritually separated from God. He said, I've been banished from your sight. My life was ebbing away. I feel barred out. I'm like on one side of a wall and you're on the other. And God, I want to be with you. I don't want to be separated from you. So he's feeling the physical Break of death. He's feeling the seaweed around his neck. He's feeling separated from his God, spiritually lost. And then God provides a way out. The next question, how is he praying? How is he praying? Let me read to you a little bit uh, from the text. It says, the cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. In my alarm, I said, I'm cut off from your sight. Yet you have heard my cry for mercy. When I called to you for help, when hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers. What did we just read? Wasn't that Jonah? No, that wasn't Jonah. You guys know where that is? Yell it out confidently. Yeah, from the Psalms, right? But isn't it fascinating how similar the words are? Look at the Psalms here, represented Psalm 18, 69, 31, 118, 120. What is Jonah doing? What does this show? Well, he's starting to think like a prophet again is what's happening. He's using the words of the Lord. He's using what he's been studying and what he's been praying through all of his life. Amen. He's, he's responding the way that God would want him to respond with his own words. You see it in Jesus. When you study the life of Jesus, you see him speaking and praying through Scripture. The Word of God is his own Word. I remember thinking when I first came out to church and started studying the Bible with our sister congregation in Los Angeles... Uh, it was a little bit bizarre how some of the, the young men that I was around back then in the campus ministry uh, would constantly be quoting scripture all the time, like in normal conversation. And a lot of times when they were joking about something and someone would say, uh, do you have any food in your fridge? I'm starving. And, and they would say, I have food you know nothing about. And then the other guy would be like, ha that's funny. And I'd be like, why is that funny? And it's like, oh, because that's a scripture. And then we'd open it up. I'm like, man, these guys really know their Bible. It's a little weird. You know, it's like, Bible funny, you know. But, but now I do it, so I guess I'm a little bit weird. But I, I thought, man, you know, speech actually tells you so much about a culture. Mm -hmm. How people speak, 
how they communicate, how they act, how they behave, particularly speech shows a lot about culture. You speak like and you communicate like the people that you respect right. and admire. Some people choose academics or celebrities or rappers or poets or politicians. Not many choose politicians. Others, maybe their parents, maybe their mentors that they have in life. Jonah decided that he would start speaking God's words. Amen. It's a good challenge for us. Do we, as people of God, speak His words? Do we pray His words? Some of our prayers are so filled with me and I and I want that we forget about God's words and how magnificent He is. How we are called to adore Him in our worship, in our prayer. To pray through His words, to pray through the Psalms. Are His words in our minds and hearts as we sojourn the streets of this city? Or are there other words in our head that are playing around? Mm -hmm. When we're on the sidewalk, are, are the psalms just ringing in your head? Or are you thinking about some, like, you know, some threats, you know, or, or some other things? Where does God's word play out in your life outside of Sunday service? Yeah. Are they prevalent in your thinking? Do you wake up thinking about his words and, and think about it when you're in different situations throughout your day? Are they, are they something that's stained on your heart? You know, a disciple of Jesus strives to speak like him with wisdom, with his love, and mostly with his Father's word. It's a good challenge for us. How do we speak? At this time, I want to show a clip from Finding Nemo, as we are doing uh, throughout the series. Finding Jonah is, uh, is a little bit of a play on Finding Nemo, as we all can get lost to see uh, with distractions and decisions that we make in life. And uh, in this scene... Uh, and as we established last week, uh, there are no spoilers when the movie has been out at least 10 years. That's what we decided. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Uh, so uh, here, uh, Marlon is uh, Nemo's dad, and Dory, uh, a newfound friend who has a memory, short-term memory issue, um, are searching for Nemo. And uh, they have an encounter with quite a big fish. So we'll enjoy this clip right now. directions that we can go uh, with this clip. Um, they have a, a little bit of a Jonah experience, right? And here, Dory and Marlon represent, I would say, two extremes during what seems like a bad situation. On the one hand, uh, what is Dory doing when they're inside the whale at the very beginning? As the water is swishing back and forth, what's she doing? She's riding the wave. She's having a great time. It's like she's on uh, some kind of amusement park ride, right? So on the one hand, there's this uh, acceptance, uh, finding truth in it, and, and waiting for answers to make themselves available. And here, Dory's actually quite enjoying it. And on the other hand, uh, what is Marlon doing? Just battling, uh, just completely, you know, hopelessly fighting to try to make his way out. And he's frustrated. He doesn't accept the truth on this hand and tries to control it to the point of exhaustion, frustration, and freak out. Uh, Jonah similarly has a couple of these different options to go down. On one hand, 
uh, he can decide to, to freak out in the fish and kind of decide to kick against the goads and, and fight hopelessly against God and his plan, or accept it and, and try to find the truth and wait for God to provide answers. And actually, I would say that he is on the extreme, almost like Dory. I don't know if enjoying it's the right word, but he's praying thanksgiving to God. When you look back at the text, he says, I praise you, God. I'm thankful for this. This is basically paraphrasing. This is awesome. Thanks for rescuing me. I love what you created here uh, in my little home and tomb for three days inside the fish. And so you see this kind of example through this challenging situation, and it really challenges us. The question for us is, how are we in a crisis? Right. In what seems like a bad situation, what are the ways that we respond or react? Do we panic? Do we run? Do we give up? Do we get angry? I notice a lot of New Yorkers get angry when there's a panic situation. And uh, most often that leads to very quick retaliation uh, if there's some initial reaction. Um, I think probably one of the biggest temptations for us, and I'll say this on behalf of New Yorkers, is trying to control a situation. Maybe not everyone in the room, but I'm pretty sure if we took a poll or we just followed you around with a GoPro for 24 hours, we would find it to be true. In the heat of the moment, we can convince ourselves that we can control the situation. That we can undo whatever damage has been done, that we can solve or rectify or justify whatever's going on, and we put our faith in ourselves. And it becomes more frustrating when other people don't agree with our strategy. And we get bitter. How can they be okay with this? This is not okay. I'm taking matters into my own hands. And we, come, we become pacing and frustrated and angry and exhausted like Marlon, angry at Dory for enjoying herself in what should be a situation where she is filled with, with frustration herself. You know, this is most evident, I think, in the American obsession with cars. I know that we're in New York, so not a lot of us have automobiles, and I, for one, am very glad that I don't here in New York. I love walking and biking and taking the train. Uh, but yesterday, I drove to Washington, D.C., and then I drove back in the same day. And uh, you, got, you get to see a lot coming out of D.C. traffic. <laughs> and, you know, I was just in my little rental car, you know, listening to my music, and this little sports car flew by me. I don't know where he thought he was going because it was traffic, <laughs> and it was like 15 minutes of traffic. But, you know, he was very intent on weaving through the traffic, thinking that he would make his way up. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen yes. this happen? Most of you are guilty now because you do that. Okay, I understand. You're putting our lives at risk. Okay, that's a different sermon. So, you know, I didn't really pay it much mind, but it was a yellow, fast sports car, and I kind of took note of it, and I said, okay, 15 minutes later, guess who I passed on the left side? Going about 10 miles an hour. And, and I just looked over, and I'm frustrated, holding on, and I just smiled. He didn't literally look at me, but I smiled, and I didn't want to, you know, have an interaction, um, but I just kept going, and I thought, man, he really believes that he can control the situation. And the car is like the perfect vehicle to enable our obsession with control. Oh yeah, you can do whatever you want in that car. No, you can't. You can't control the traffic. You can't control the weather. You can't control other drivers. In fact, you're more frustrated thinking you can't control the situation. You know what I'm saying? That's us on the train, right? Man, if I keep switching and going back and forth, I'll make the time up and then I will control the seat. What's wrong with the seat train? I'm going to tell somebody, okay, go ahead and fight that battle. See how far you get. Control is an illusion. Right. It's an illusion. Car accidents, earthquakes, brain tumors, cancer, you can't control it. At some point, you have to decide what is your demeanor going to be when it seems like a bad situation has been dealt to you. I'm not saying give up. 
of saying, get real. You're not God. Let him do his job. Come on. You're going to kick against the goads. You're going to be more frustrated as a result. Guy Hammond and I were texting this morning. His wife is the one that yes. Kathy that we prayed for earlier. His heart is broken about his wife's situation, but he's deciding, I've got to trust God. I have no other choice. I can't control tumors. To me, that's inspiring. He's the only one worthy of trust, trusting God. How did David defeat Goliath? Because he, had, he was good with a slingshot? No. Because he had the Almighty God with him. How did Moses defeat the Egyptian army? Because he had a really cool staff and like talked to bushes and used to be a prince in Egypt? No. Moses had the help of God Almighty, an army of one. No necessary army. Only one. His name is God. That's all you need. But some of us have that army at our disposal, but we are choosing to fight alone. Which is ridiculous and pure pride. You're in the belly of the beast and you can't get out. And you're like the fish banging against the front of the fish's mouth thinking that that's going to change something. So let go of the control you actually don't even have. And trust the Lord. But Marlon says what we're all thinking. How do you know, though, that if I let go, that nothing bad won't happen or will happen? And what's the answer that Dory gives? I don't know. I'll do you one better. Something bad will happen. Right. It will happen. We live in a corrupt and fallen world. True deliverance for disciples of Jesus comes in death, in eternity, and in heaven. That's why we don't live in fear. That's why we don't live in worry. That's why we live life to the full. That's why we can ride the water back and forth and say it's crazy, but I trust God. Come on. In the beast, or in pain, or in trauma, or in depression, as the song says, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen. Amen. Dory trusts that the whale is going to help them. Marlon is convinced that the whale wants to eat them. That is the extremes on either of our shoulders, every situation that we encounter. And you know, I think when most people think of the Jonah story, they think the fish is like Moby Dick, like the, the bad white whale, evil punishment. But what does Jonah say, even at the end of chapter 1? The Lord provided. Right. Provided. That's an interesting word. In the King James Version, it said the Lord prepared a fish. As if maybe God made this creature unique amongst the species Perfectly suited to be able to handle the situation at that time, at that place, swallowed him up, breathing ability, spit him out, and then maybe disappear back into eternity. I don't know. But it's the same word that's used when God provided manna for the Israelites in the desert. God provides. God provides. Now sometimes his provision doesn't look like we'd imagine it would look like. Comes in the form of a challenge. We say, that's not what I asked for. I asked for an easy life on vacation in Hawaii. I did not ask for a big fish and stomach acid. I don't think Jonah imagined that would be his deliverance. It was an unlikely deliverance. But how many of us can share stories about the ways that God worked in our life that were unlikely? We were talking recently in a Bible study, and Quentin was sharing that when he was in college, he was this amazing athlete and on the track team and breaking records left and right. And he got a serious injury, a serious leg injury. And you know it was amazing because the way he talks about it is that that's what led him to making the decision to make Jesus Lord of his life and to be your brother in Christ. 
Now, as an athlete, as someone who looks at his future and feels like, man, my hamstring is gone, my life is ruined, how do you do that? See, God has to do something in your mind to change your perspective to understand what his plan is. And then later on, when we share the stories, we thank God for the whale. We thank God for the fish. We thank God for the injury. We thank God for the stomach acid and the indigestion and the challenging relationships and all the things that brought us here today. Amen? Amen. Rascal Flatt says it better than me. God bless the broken road that leads me back to you. Amen. Let's close out in Matthew chapter 12. Because Jonah's talked about all over the Bible. And here we hear from... Matthew, in chapter 12, verse 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah precedes Jesus. He's praying to his Father for mercy. He feels death and the spiritual separation. Three days in Sheol, and then resurrection, redemption from the grave. And this is the path that we all are following. Willing to walk his way, speak his language, willing to let go of the illusion of control and let him do his work in our lives. Let's bow our heads and pray for the community. Our Father in heaven, we know that the world has done a job on us to convince us that we have control over so many things that we do not have control over. And God, we ask that you will step in to our hearts and minds right now and give us the right perspective to understand hard situations. To remember that you always are in control. You always have a plan. You always know how things are going to turn out and that even if death is at our doorstep, we know you even have a plan in that, God. God, please help us trust you. Please help us imitate Jonah's change of heart to be really real. And mostly, Father, we ask that we could be like your son Jesus who fought for the same thing as he sweat blood up on the mountain, as he prayed for mercy, as he decided to go ahead and face the greatest fear, the pain, the torture, the execution on the cross. And then he went through with it, and then he raised him on the third day. God, thank you for that victory. Help us to imitate his faith. Right now, as we take the emblems of that incredible death and resurrection, the, the juice that represents his blood, the bread that represents his body, help us to be transformed from the inside out to be able to have victory in our lives as Jonah did. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.